Verse 29 of our passage this morning, which is Acts 26, 19 through 32, records the Apostle Paul saying in his sermon uh, before the governor Festus and King Agrippa, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me this day might, might become such as I am except for these chains. I have found that to be one of the most powerful, moving uh, statements uh, in all the scripture. And think, a couple, in fact, a couple of years ago, we were, I was just reading the passage as part of our morning worship service and got to that point and I stumbled. So extraordinary is, is the statement that the Apostle Paul is saying is he stands before the great ones of the earth. Uh, there's the representatives of the monarchy and, and of, the, of the Roman Empire itself. And he says, in, in, the, in the words of the King, to King James ver Version, would to God that you were altogether such as I am, except for these bonds, except for these chains. All, all that wealth, power, and pomp all that is as nothing, he says, wishing that they could have what he, he had because nothing in this world uh, can compare with what the Apostle Paul had in Christ. And so he could say to a monarch and a representative of the empire, would to God that you had what I have. Now we're in the second part of the Apostle's uh, a sermon to, the, to these great ones who have, uh, who have gathered before him to hear what he has to say. And he's given us this powerful summary of the human condition that the gospel is designed to address. So we left off at verse 18. So he was sent, he said, by Christ himself, to uh, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. What's the human condition? It's a, it's a condition of blindness. And from the power of Satan to God, what's the human condition? It's a condition of bondage, that they may receive forgiveness for sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What's the human condition? It's a condition of alienation. And in Christ, we receive the forgiveness of our sins, and we are restored to a, to a right place, a place of fellowship with God, and are sanctified by his spirit. By what? By faith in me. So we looked at that under the heading of the message and experience of the believer. And, and this time as we move along, we're going to look at the message and the mission. Uh, looking further into the message, but also in terms of the, that mission that, he, that the apostle is called to. So, uh, number one, what, what is that mission? Verse 19, therefore, O King Agrippa, uh, the apostle Paul says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. That's, that's a little, that's, it's a bit of a rhetorical understatement. Uh, uh, the, the negative, I was not disobedient. In other words, I was wholly obedient to the heavenly vision, the one that I received on the Damascus road, recorded back in chapter 9, and re reinforced by the vision in the temple in chapter 22. So I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, on, on which road I was, uh, I was traveling, then in Jerusalem and throughout the re all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles and by implication all the way to the ends of the earth. 
that they should repent and turn to God and so forth. In other words, the Apostle Paul was given a worldwide commission and a universal message. Uh, This is that great commission of Matthew chapter uh, 28, that we are to go and to make disciples of all the nations, uh, all the nations without exception. It's It's a worldwide commission. Uh, without, uh, without regard to race, without uh, regard to ethnicity, without regard to class uh, or, or national citizenship. Now, this is, a, this is a message that is universal, that uh, is needed by all of humanity, and I'm being commissioned, along with the other disciples, to go and to take that message into all the world. Uh, this, uh, this recollection uh, reminds us of Acts chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 8, where where Jesus, just prior to his ascension, said uh, to the disciples uh, that they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and then Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's a gospel for all of the world. It's a a worldwide mission uh, because it's a worldwide message. So the message about God, this gospel message tells us the truth about God, and, and it tells us the truth about uh, humanity, and it tells us the truth about the way of redemption in, in Christ. It, it teaches us about sin and salvation. It, it's a message that all of humanity needs to hear. And the apostle says in, in, in verse 20, but declared first. It's a message to be declared. That's a strong word. Uh, it means to proclaim and, or to announce authoritatively. It's not a message to just share, as it were, or to negotiate or to discuss. And it's certainly not a message that he just makes up. It's rather a message that God gives. And because it's from God, it is a message to be declared. We wouldn't be that direct and that bold and that dogmatic if it were just our own philosophy, if it were just our own idea, if, if it were something that we drummed up on our own. But uh, so often it just comes back to this whole issue. Is, is the gospel message, is it God's word? Is the Bible the word of God? If it is the word of God, then that settles a lot of issues. Then it's, it's to be received. Uh, then it's to be um, believed. Then, then it's to be obeyed. That, that's not a thing that we negotiate with. And that's not uh, uh, something that we that we tread lightly on. It's rather, it's a a message that's to be proclaimed and declared. Uh, Back in the, uh, during the fundamentalist modernist controversies of the 1920s and and 1930s, there was a debate that raged in the Northern Presbyterian Church and among the, those who were featured in that debate were J. Gresham Machen and Pearl S. Buck. Uh, you know, the author of The, the Good Earth, the uh, award-winning uh, book. Well, in 1932, uh, there was an inter- interdenominational uh, study group that produced uh, a document called Rethinking Mission in, in which it, 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 it called into question the whole endeavor of Christian missions. It, it questioned whether or not we should be going with our religious message and imposing that on other people and insinuating that their religion was an error. Uh, And they said that we should be going to seek the truth, not to present the truth. And Machen published a 110-page rebuttal. Machen, uh, the professor at Princeton Seminary and then the founder of Westminster uh, Seminary, 
Pearl S. Buck in, fully endorsed this, this new approach to mission, which in fact would be the death of missions. In other words, we don't have the truth to take to other people. What are we doing going to them at all? And, and, and are we guilty of some kind of a cultural Im imperialism? And this is what Buck was saying. She belittled preaching and she belittled the Christian essentials, even the deity of Christ uh, and, and other essential doctrines. And, and Machen, uh, Machen's rebuttal, of course, was this is God's truth. Of course, we would be arrogant if we were to go out in the world and declare these things unless it were God-given. It's not just our opinion. It's not just something that we made up. It's, it's, just not, it's not good advice from us. This is God's word. This is God's message, and therefore, this is God's mission. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a universal truth, and so it is a worldwide mission that the church is called to and the Christians are endeavoring upon. All right, then let's look at the message itself as he describes it beginning in verse 20. Uh, I was not diso disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. Repent and turn to God. That's uh, the two sides of a, of a saving response uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent is the negative. Uh, turn to God is the positive. It's another way of speaking of faith. So it's interesting, when you go through the book of Acts, you find that Sometimes the call is to repent, like at Pentecost, repent and be baptized. Sometimes it's to believe, uh, the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then sometimes it's both, as in Acts 20, verse 20. Uh, we, there Paul says he preached repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the negative and there's the positive. There's the turning from sin, there's the trusting in Christ. That's, that's, uh, that's what we call people to do. We call them to turn from their sin. This is a vital part of what it means to be saved. We recognize the, the foul nature of our sin. Uh, we, we, we recognize the evil of our sin, the evil of our way of life, uh, that God disapproves of, of, uh, of our habits and, 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 and our, our lifestyle. And we turn away from that to God. In other words, it's a unitive act. A saving response to the gospel is this unitive act of turning from sin to Christ. Turning from sin is repentance. To Christ is faith. That's what the apostle was commissioned to preach. That's what the church has been commissioned to preach ever since. To say no to sin and to say yes to God in Christ. Then he goes on and he speaks of performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Which is to say that where there is true repentance, there will be change, change in lifestyle. It will, it will be evidenced by the, 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 not just the turning away from as a momentary thing, but a forsaking of that, uh, that sin. There will be the fruit of obedience and the fruit of, of holiness will inevitably and invariably result. And so he describes that uh, as... Uh, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. In other words, where there's true repentance and faith, good deeds are going to follow. They will follow invariably and necessarily. There will be this life change. These uh, deeds are not meritorious, but they are necessary as evidence and testimony to the reality of one's conversion. Uh, this is what uh, John the Baptist preached, recorded in Luke chapter 3, that those who were responding to his message, 
uh, provide fruits in keeping with repentance. Very specifically, he said to the tax collectors, they were to uh, collect no more than what they were authorized to uh, collect. In other words, they they were required to be honest. Uh, And the soldiers, that uh, they not exhort money from anyone by threats. In other words, they were to be content with their, their own wages. Deeds in keeping with repentance would be such as the philanderer would give up his illicit relationship and practice fidelity in marriage. The thief would return what he has stolen and would practice honesty. The liar would set the record straight and preach and speak the truth. James, too, provides some clarity with these issues where, where, where James asks, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And the answer is no. That's the implicit answer. No, that, that faith, what kind of faith? The faith that doesn't produce good works. So they're not meritorious, but they're necessary. They always follow where there is genuine faith. And so the apostle Paul can, can say that he preached that they were to perform the deeds in keeping with repentance because where there is saving faith, it, the, the gospel produces life change, a repudiation of the past, and, a, and an enabling of, of, a, of a new outlook, and new priorities, and new dreams, and new aspirations, and a new perspective on life. All that gospel change comes about. And so there will be necessarily and invariably, with saving faith, transformation of life. What he's calling uh, deeds performed in keeping with repentance. And then a third, in, in, in terms of this uh, summary of his message, uh, the, 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 all this is in the name of Jesus Christ. So back up at verse 18. By, uh, place among those who are sanctified, by faith in me. That, that, in many ways, that is the point, and that is the focus. His, his detractors, his persecutors would have believed in repentance and believed in faith. The Pharisees would have uh, agreed with that absolutely. Repentance, faith, doing the good deeds that are consistent with repentance, that's not the issue for them. That's not the focus. That's not the, the point of departure. That's not the argument. The argument is over Jesus Christ and whether or not he is the Messiah, whether or not he is the Savior of the world. Uh, that's the point at issue. So he goes on in this passage and says in verse 21, for this reason, for what reason? Uh, Because he was proclaiming Christ as the Messiah, as the Savior. The Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. It It wasn't the message of repentance. It wasn't the message of good deeds that was at issue. It was the message of Christ. To this day, he says, I've had help that comes from God so that I was able to sustain Uh, their persecution. I I didn't crumble uh, under it. I wasn't crushed by it. So I stand here testifying both to small and to great, as he's addressing these great ones of the earth, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That is, when I preach Christ, I'm not an innovator. I'm not introducing some new truth. I'm not preaching some new doctrine. I am walking in the ancient paths. I'm only saying what the prophets and Moses said. Verse 23, that the Christ must suffer and that by being first to rise from the dead, 
he would proclaim light, the light that we need in our darkness, both to our people and to the Gentiles. So he would, as in other of his and Peter's messages, he he undoubtedly would have gone to Isaiah 53 that describes the suffering of Christ and as well as Psalm 22 and then Psalm 16 which prophesies of the resurrection of Christ and uh, Psalm 110 that prophesies of the ascension of Christ and he, would, he, he is arguing that, that, that this is, is not something that, uh, that is a, an, an innovation. This is the message of the, of the Old Testament from Genesis uh, all the way to Malachi. It is the message of the prophets. It is the message of Moses. It is the message of the Bible that the Christ, when he came, would be a light to our people and to the Gentiles. And, and I would maintain that this remains the issue to this day. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? Uh, we can easily get distracted from this. There's all kinds of problems with the church and in the church. There's all kinds of problems with uh, other Christians that would distract us and uh, deflect attention to the real issue when the real issue is, is Jesus the Son of God and God the Son? Is he the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us and whose, whose glory we beheld? Is, is he all that he claimed to be? And, and is, was he able to do all that he said he came to do, providing for us the, the gift of eternal life and the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with God? So when, when, when I'm having discussions with unbelievers, and a, a number of you will have heard me say this before, what I like to tell them to do, just go read Matthew's Gospel. And in particular, read the Sermon on the Mount. Read Matthew 5 through 7. And tell me as you do so, if you do not encounter someone who defies explanation and who evokes admiration and who compels your worship. This brings us now to, beyond the message, to the responses. We have three negative responses uh, to the Apostles' Sermon. Uh, that began all the way back in verse 2. Three negative responses. Uh, number one, there was opposition. So that's referred to in verse 21. For this reason. What reason? Because he was preaching Christ. It wasn't because of his personality. It wasn't because of uh, mistakes he had made along the way. And no, no, but what, uh, what the apostle Paul was, was preaching, it was threatening to people. It's always threatening to people. Uh, the first century religious figures uh, found the gospel to be a threat to their power and to their status quo. Mark says they delivered Jesus up because of, because of envy. Ecclesiastical envy was the motivation. And church battles, are, they're, often, they're often battles for uh, control, uh, bat, bat battles of, uh, concerning power. When Harry Emerson Fosdick uh, preached what I think is the second most famous sermon in American history, you ask what's the first most famous, uh, I would say it was Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sins in the Hands of an Angry God. The second most famous is Harry Emerson Fosdick's sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? He preached that in 1922 from the pulpit of the First Presbyterian Church of New York City. Uh, shall they win what? Shall they win control? Shall they win control of the churches? Shall they, uh, shall they continue to exercise power in the churches? It was a matter of control. Whose message is going to prevail? Who is going to win the battle? Shall it be the fundamentalists who believe the Bible, believe the gospel, preach the same? 
Or is it going to be this revised message that, uh, that the progressives and the liberals had, had come up with? In, in our day, it's, uh, it's the Christian moral code as much as anything. And, and during the 20s and 30s, uh, the big issues were supernaturalism. Uh, do we believe in the virgin birth of Christ? Do we believe in the inspiration of Scripture? Uh, do we believe in the miracles of Jesus? Uh, today, those issues hardly ever come up. Uh, th this is why uh, Tim Keller has said that his book, Reasons for God, which are defending the supernatural and the, providing the various arguments for the existence of God, this is why he said that book was obsolete the day that it was published. Because those aren't the questions people are asking anymore. The questions are all about morality. It's the Christian moral code that is offensive. And so we are provoking a lot of opposition these days because of our moral teaching, because of traditional, historic, Christian moral teaching. That's the offense. Well, there's always been something that is offended. So that it provokes opposition. Uh, secondly, it provokes non-comprehension. Verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, this is the governor, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Uh, the word that is used there is mania. You're a maniac, Paul. You're mad. Uh, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. He repeats for a second time. He, he, this is his response to Paul. Obviously, he sees uh, this, is a, this is an educated man, this Apostle Paul. He's a, he's a cultured man, and he's so earnest. And what's he earnest about? He is earnest about religion. Why, why would you put your life at risk for religion? See, see, Festus is a man of this world. He says, Paul, all right, religion has its place. It has this, uh, this, uh, this place that it ought to occupy in your life. Well, you know, we pray to the gods and so forth. But you've gone way too far. You're far too serious about this thing. You've got things all way out of proportion. You're making a big deal out of religion when you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be putting yourself at risk. You shouldn't be standing here declaring these things to be so. All that learning, literally all your books have driven you completely mad. You're insane, Paul, for making the priority that you have made of matters that are just religious. Uh, that's the voice of this world. Now, Festus can go on down to the local arena and watch human beings uh, s slaughter each other at the gladiatorial games. Now, that's not to be insane. And, and, and we can go absolutely berserk over, over our, our sports team or become complete fanatics about a, a given uh, political philosophy. And all that is seen as uh, sane and, and normal uh, and, uh, and even in the political realm, as virtuous. But to be taking religion as seriously as the apostle Paul is taking religion, oh, well, that, that's just to be a fanatic. It's insane. It's just overboard. You're worked up over nothing. You've gone over the top. You've just gone way too far in, the, in this religious matter. I see, the world has everything upside down. You can be completely obsessed with, with earning money or in the pursuit of fame and, and fortune and, and popularity, but to be dealing with matters of e eternal consequence with the kind of seriousness that we see here in the Apostle Paul, this from a, the, 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 the point of view of, of a worldling is completely nuts. 
You are your non-compos mentis, Paul. You're out of your mind. See, the world's got everything upside down. Isaiah chapter 5, it calls light darkness and darkness light. It calls good evil and evil good. It's everything is backwards in the world. And Festus just represents that. He doesn't understand anything except this world and the pleasures of this world and the power that he can exercise in this world and the positions that he can occupy in this world. That, that anyone would take religion so seriously is, is beyond his imagination. Paul answers calmly, I'm not out of my mind, still polite, most excellent Festus. He's just been called a name. He's just been accused of being crazy, but no, most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king, now he sort of brushes aside Festus's objection as the governor, and now he's speaking directly to Agrippa, who is a Jew. And who knows about these things. The king knows, verse 26, about these things. And to him I speak boldly. In other words, I can be direct and clear with you because you're Jewish and you understand the matters about which we're speaking and you understand the events that have taken place in Palestine. These things that I mentioned in verse 23, that Christ must suffer and that he would rise from the dead and that he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Uh, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. And then, very, very boldly, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Do, do, do you recognize what has happened here? The, the guy that is in chains, the man that is regarded as a common criminal, is now in charge of the conversation. He has come to dominate the whole proceedings. And what he's saying is that you and your ilk, you know better. Worldlings know better. Festus may be uncomprehending, but we know that he knows better. Uh, we, we, we know because uh, the truth of God is, is evident. His invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature are clearly seen. Uh, worldlings, they know better. Romans 2, the, the laws of God are written on their hearts. Their conscience bears witness to these things. So there is this opposition, and then there is this non-comprehension. But then King Agrippa, there, then there's this evasion as Paul now dominates as he begins to interrogate his interrogators. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now we, ha we have to say a few words about this verse uh, because the King James Version said, uh, translated this, pa th th this clause, almost thou persuadeth me to be a Christian. So one of George Whitfield's great sermons was the almost Christian. And then there was the gospel song, almost persuaded. That's really not what's being said here. Look, look at the, the ESV translation. In a short time, uh, that, that's the sense of things, 
Would you in a short time persuade me to be a Christian? In a short time and with so few words, Paul, do you think that you can persuade me to be a Christian? And then verse 29, where we began this message this morning, the Apostle Paul said, whether it's short or long, short on words, long on time, whatever the case may be, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Paul, this man in chains, this common criminal, standing before the riches of royalty, is saying, all that is as nothing compared with knowing Christ. And Christian, this is what we have. Over against all the perks of royalty and empire, what do we have? That which is greater than all that the world has to offer. Would to God that you were altogether such as I am in rags, except for these chains. An unbeliever, this is what we offer. We offer reconciliation with your maker. We offer the forgiveness of sins. We, meaning the gospel, it offers, it offers the certainty of life after death with God, the gift of eternal life. It, it, it provides uh, peace of conscience, peace in one's heart, uh, a peace that passes comprehension, uh, the joy that's inexpressible and, and full of glory. Those, those are the Bible words. Those are the testimonies of the Apostle Paul. That's the same man who's giving the testimony right here. He, he's talking about what his experience is as one who has received the message and who is on the mission so that he can say to the great ones of the earth that I have this. Is, there is nothing in all the world that compares with what I have. And I want that for you, except the chains that I'm wearing. Verse 30, then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, all of the leading authorities, they, they leave in silence. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. They walk away in silence. And I want to say to you this morning, don't walk away in silence. Don't walk away from Christ. Don't walk away from the gospel message. Don't walk away from the benefits that the Apostle has presented to us here this morning. There is nothing in all the world that could compensate for the loss of salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus asked, what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And the answer to the question is he would profit nothing. Nothing rivals the gift of eternal life that's entered into in this world, in Christ, and carries us on into eternity 
to be in the presence of God, whose presence is the fullness of joy and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. So that this same apostle can say to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To depart and be with him is far better, he says. There's a most remarkable man. It is a most remarkable statement. And I trust that all of us want to be able to say at the end of the day to whoever we meet, whether a person in a high position or a low position, one of the great ones of the earth or or one of the, the poorest of our contemporaries. Would to God that you were altogether such as I am as a Christian, as a believer, as one who knows Jesus as Savior and Lord and who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Would to God that you were altogether such as I am. Yet without these chains, as we pray together, Our Father in heaven, we're profoundly moved by the apostles' words. And oh, that we might be similarly brave, courageous, honest, and at peace, and filled with joy and contentment resting in your will, filled with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.